Good morning, Northwest Hills Church Online. We're the Furlough family. This is James, I'm Jesse, Samson over here, and Eleanor. We are so excited this morning because we've got some great news for you. Over the past few months, a few babies have been born, and we wanted to introduce them to you. So here's a few videos of just some of the babies that have been born over the few months into our Northwest Hills family, and we just can't wait. We're getting new friends, we're getting new babies, and here they are. You get to meet them just a little bit. Are we excited? Yeah! Yeah! New babies! We love babies! <laughs> hey, Northwest Hills family. This is Silas, Ethan, and I'm Kristen, and this is Henry. Silas was born May 1st, and uh, he has just been a huge blessing to our family. I uh, can't wait to see you all and introduce you to Silas soon. Love you. Hi, Northwest Hills family. This is Trevor Bowman. And Olivia Bowman. And the newest member, Lois Ophelia Bowman. Yeah. She was born May 25th at 3.08. She's six weeks and four days today, and she just had her first smile, real smile, a couple days ago. And she rolled over the first time today, so she's practicing all the things. So. Well, we love you guys. Hope to see you all soon. We're, We're the, the Jacobus family. family, and we just had a baby. We're going to introduce him kids' church style. This is Teddy. Hello. Teddy was born April 27th in Corvallis. Woohoo! Teddy is a happy baby, but he sure does like to sleep. Thank you so much for all your love and prayers, Northwest Hills Church. We are sorry that you haven't been able to meet him yet because he's a total doll, but we hope to see you all soon and take care and stay safe and healthy. Love you. Bye. Bye. Hey, and Dub H fam, we're the Happenies, and during stay-at-home church, we were blessed with little Lawson Judah, born on May 5th. Uh, he weighed in at about 7 pounds, 15 ounces, and 19 and a half inches long. He's a pretty chill little guy. He reminds us a lot of Easton. And he's already a little rule breaker as he is yet to wear a mask inside. <laughs> we look forward to everybody meeting him just as soon as it's uh, safe to. Love you guys. Good morning, Northwest Hills. One of the reasons that we wanted to share some of the newest members of our family is simply just to remind us that we are a church family. Um, it feels weird right now because we haven't been able to gather all together as we normally would. So the family element seems a little bit different. But I just wanted to remind us, we are a church family. Right? Last week we talked about the fact that God saves and frees us from something. But not just from something, he saves us to something. And one of those somethings that he saves us to is a people. And for us that is a family, that is a church family. So what does it mean right now in COVID to be part of our church family? I think this is a really important question that all of us should be asking. I think it's a question that us as a leadership team are wrestling through. What does it look like to be a part of this family right now? Well, our vision and our mission haven't changed. They are exactly the same thing. To love Jesus, to live like him, and to make him known. To love Jesus, we say that we commit to Sundays, that we practice the spiritual disciplines. To live like Jesus, we say that we are a people who intentionally want to both be in community and serve. And then to make Jesus known, we make it a part of everything that we do to share the gospel with our friends, families, coworkers, people that we play with and live with and have fun with and work with. We want that to be a part of our very life. But what do those things look like during COVID? Right, the first thing I would say is um, committing to Sundays. We still believe it's really important, whether you can make it here physically in our limited services or whether you're watching online, that gathering together, not just together, but gathering for a Sunday service is essential. The Bible tells us, do not forsake the assembly. It's essential, A, to be learning the same things together as a people, to be like-minded in the things that God's teaching us. But more than just that, it's essential to gather each week, to take a moment and to say, you're God. I need you. Look at you. You're incredible. We call this worship often, and we do this through singing very often, but it's so important for our souls to recognize every week that God exists and that we need to intentionally go out of our way to worship him. So we gather. We gather as a people here. We gather online, but Sundays are still the same. We still want to commit to doing that regularly. We also still want to be practicing the disciplines. This is an invitation of a way that God tells us that we can be close to him, that we can grow. 
We see this through fasting, through prayer, through Bible reading, through practicing Sabbath, through silence and solitude. We as a staff are working on a couple different means right now and how to get some helpful tools into your hands during this COVID season that will help us with some of these spiritual disciplines. So that hasn't changed. What has changed a little bit is community right now. You know, right now, first of all, it's summer and our community groups take a break. But more importantly than ever in the fall, in September, would be that you would join a community group. Yeah, it's going to look a little different. Yes, occasionally, sometimes those will probably have to be on Zoom. But our hope is that those community groups will be able to meet in person. That you'll have kind of a small core and team, your community group, that you will commit to meeting with. And, you know, the chances are you might be meeting with that group on Sunday mornings watching something just like this for a long season, and we want to commit to being connected and involved to a smaller group of people. Church isn't just about showing up on Sunday. It's not just about watching a film, but it's about connecting to a group of people, living like Jesus did in community. And then serving. Yeah, sure, serving right now looks a little bit different. We don't have a lot of the same programs right now. We don't have a lot of the same things happening on Sundays, but there are a number of things happening. Even just this very morning, I was talking to some of the guys from Men's 127 who are going out and serving a bunch of uh, widows and single moms in our community. How awesome is that? There's opportunity for growth there. There's opportunity all over our campus as we're under construction and there's a lot of needs that uh, can be met here. And there still are programs and groups that are meeting. So a lot of different ways to serve. And then lastly, of course, we still want to be a people who make Jesus known. More than ever, we have opportunity as people are hurting and struggling. And I believe we're just at the beginning of what that's going to look like, where we can be praying for people and sharing with our neighbors, I care about you because someone cares about me, bringing our faith into our world everywhere we go. So, Northwest Hills, we are a family. Our family is growing as we are apart. And our family's mission and vision is still the same. We exist to love Jesus, to live like him, and make him known. Here's a word from Justin Jackson, and enjoy our Sunday service. Man, thank you so much for those words, Josh. What a good reminder of how our vision has remained throughout this season. Uh, Good morning, you guys. I'm Justin Jackson, the worship director. It is so good to see you. I miss you so much. Uh, I just want to give you a quick update about what we're doing Uh, in the next couple weeks, starting next week, this will be July 19th. We will no longer be doing videos like this. We will now be streaming our live service here in our sanctuary. So what you'll be seeing is the stuff happening on stage. It'll be maybe a little bit of latency, um, but it's uh, just another step forward as we're kind of updating our systems and bringing you our services in person. So another point of connectivity, you'll be able to talk with one another, to chat, to in person at that moment, be able to say like, hey, it's so good to be here. Uh, So we're really excited to be doing that with you guys. That's coming up this next week. Um, Thank you so much for being with us through this season as we've been doing these videos. Uh, I'm just so thankful for the opportunity we've had to connect even through this time. So uh, enjoy the rest of the service, you guys. God bless you.
My family, Northwest Hills, it is so good um, to be a church. And I've just been thinking a lot this week about a church and what it means to be a church and what it means to be a people and what it means that God saved us from something like we talked about last week, but he saved us to something. And one of the twos that God saved us to 
is a people, and we are that people, and we belong to each other. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to pursue what belonging looks like, like we talked about earlier in this video. Just be praying as a family, as an individual, God, what does me belonging in this season look like? It's going to be different but we really want to fight against that consumer culture of, oh, I can just log on at any point, and if I don't like what Josh has to say, I can just stop it. We want to fight against that. We want to, we want to press into how can I belong to something bigger than just me and what I feel like I want in the moment. And, and maybe that's not Josh, and maybe it's another preacher, and it's, maybe it's another singer, and, and maybe this, maybe that. But how do I belong to this family right now? And so as we're sitting kind of in front of that burning bush moment and saying, God, here I am, a question that I would just ask as we look to kind of prolong this COVID season of kind of separation from each other, what does it look like to belong for you? Does it look like um, partnering up with one family and just saying, like, I'm going to serve you right now. I'm going to serve a senior right now. I'm going to serve a neighbor right now in like a regular ongoing way. I would say belonging might be something like sacrificing a Sunday morning um, just regularly to say, you know what, we're we're no longer going to just watch on our convenience. We're going to commit to 10 a.m. on Sundays or 9 a.m. on Sundays, whatever it is, but just getting ourselves in the practice and the habit of belonging to a people. As goofy as it is, and I get it, I think um, the idea of doing things out of convenience long run will do war to our souls and war to the, the body that God has saved us to. And so that's just something to think about as we get going. Um, it is so good to be together um, Love you guys. Uh, we'll, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you're brand new, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. You can go to our website, nwhills.com, uh, to find out more about what we're doing, about um, being a church who loves Jesus, who lives like him, who makes him known. But uh, I would also encourage you, if you are new, go back and listen to the, the previous messages that we've been giving. Go back, listen to the podcast, because this will be kind of confusing. We're in the middle of a narrative. We're nine weeks in, something like that. And so go back, listen to it. But I'm going to give you a quick recap, just super, super brief, and then we're going to jump right into our text today. So to date, um, where we've been is Moses and Aaron And they go before Pharaoh and they say, hey, um, Yahweh, the Lord, he wants you to let his people go. These are like his firstborn son and and you've enslaved them for 400 years. God wants you to free them, release them. And Pharaoh says this fascinating question that we'll get after today. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And Pharaoh responds and he says, thus says Pharaoh, not thus says Yahweh, thus says Pharaoh. Here's my authority. Here's my power. You're going to make the same amount of bricks, but I'm not going to provide the straw anymore. So effectively, he doubled their workload, and he said, you have to create the same product, but I'm not giving you the materials. And the result of that was the Hebrews saying to Moses, God curse you. Why did you come to us? And Moses returning to God and saying, God, I told you so. I told you so. I told you I'm I'm not your guy. Why did you even send me here? Why'd you even send me here? And God responded last week, like we talked about, and God said, okay, now, now I'm going to do something. I said I would do something uh, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, 450, 500 years later. Here we are. I'm doing something now. I'm saving you to something. And then we get a genealogy that we're not going to blaze through for just time's sake. We're, we're jumping into chapter 7, and let's see what God has to say to Moses just in this continual conversation between God and Moses. So I would ask again, this is God's word, that you would stand as I read it, and that we honor and recognize this as something that is not from me, not something from my mind, but this is straight from the Lord himself. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. 
Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and his sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may sit down, you may get back to what you were doing if you were doing something else as we listen to um, God speaking through the interpretation application of his word here. This is one of those scriptures that you read, and quite frankly, you just have a bunch of questions coming out of it, right? Like the first question that, that comes to my mind is like, what in the world is this relationship between God and Pharaoh, and why does God keep saying that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart? Right? Like, what is that about? What does that mean? What is Pharaoh's agency? Does he have real choices? What is this about? Right? The, the next question that kind of just jumps out to you is like, what's the deal with God and his desire to set Egypt or to set the Hebrews free? Like, it, it seems like if God has this great desire to free his firstborn son, this nation, why go through all the trouble that he's about to go through? Why harden Pharaoh's heart? Why not just like, boom, release them and let them go? Like, what's the deal with the snake and the sticks and these little tricks? Like, what's the deal with the wise men too? Like, the Egyptians, like, they can do that too? Like, that seems maybe unbelievable. It seems a little fantastical. Like, what's that all about? Right? What about, um, what about Egypt? Like, what's God's plan for Egypt? You know, what's God's plan for those people? Is it just like, I'm just going to annihilate them all? Like, if so, why not just do that immediately? Kind of looking forward to the plagues that we're about to get in the next multiple chapters. Like, what are those about? Like, why multiple plagues? Why not just release your people, God? You're God, you can do that. So what's that all about? And then, um, what what is God showing by bringing these people out of Egypt? Right? What, what is God's plan with Egypt itself? Is he just like some vindictive, kind of angry, like I'm just going to obliterate the people of Egypt? Like what is God doing here? There's, there's really all kinds of questions that come out of a text like today. Yet today is also a text that's kind of just um, giving us the warm-up to what's to come. Like over the next multiple weeks, we're not going to do um, one plague a week. That would take a really long time. And we could, but we're not going to. But we're going to kind of look at it in some bigger chunks. But what is this all about? Like what is this whole scene here? What is God doing through these plagues? And today we're going to kind of answer kind of that big kind of 30,000 foot level. What is God doing here? What is God doing through the plagues? And that ultimately has its roots in Pharaoh's question that I said we'd keep coming back to. And that is Pharaoh's question of, who is God and why should I obey him? Right? It's a legitimate question for Pharaoh. It's absolutely a legitimate question for you and I. Who is God and why should I obey him? And God answers that question um, for them in today's text. And we're going to look at this. But so, just for a second, put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes. Right, so we've talked about this a little bit, but Pharaoh uh, and the people of Egypt uh, worshipped a multitude of gods. So they had no problem believing that there were an infinite number of gods. There was a god for everything. Right, a god for the sun, a god for the moon, a god for the Nile. They believed that Pharaoh himself was deified and was a god. Not unlike the Greeks who believed that the emperor himself became a god when he was the emperor. And so the fact that um, Moses is coming to Pharaoh and saying, you should believe in the god of our people, like that, that doesn't really bother uh, Pharaoh at all. But his question is more like, well, who is he? Is he really that powerful? Because think about for a second. Here's Moses, and he's saying, our God, Yahweh, these are his first, this is like his firstborn son, this people group. And here's Pharaoh going like, well, clearly he's not that powerful. Like if, if you, if the most prized possession, right, your firstborn son, the one who's supposed to bring strength, who's supposed to bring security, who's supposed to protect the family, like if this firstborn son of Yahweh 
has been in slavery for 400 years. This is a pretty pathetic, pretty weak God. So who is he and why should I obey him? The reality is like maybe that's uh, Pharaoh, like kind of just with an arrogant heart saying like, are you kidding me? But there is a side of it where Pharaoh could be legitimately saying, well, like, who is this God? Like, he, he just, I just don't see the power that I ought to obey. Like, it just doesn't make sense in his world. And it's very much like the world that you and I live in, right? We live in a world where there's all kinds of things going on, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's racial relations, whether it's like partisan political anger, whether it's like family tension or education tension. And a question that can easily arise is, well, okay, if God exists, does he have power or does he care about any of these things? Or is it just that like, hey, for you churches over there, like it's great that your God exists and yeah, you, you know, you guys can go do your church thing and be kind of nice churchy people over there, but it doesn't really have a lot of bearing on our nation as a whole right now, it just, God just doesn't have much to say about that. So who is he, and really why should I obey him? The reality is the question that Pharaoh is asking is a question that subconsciously, every human being who's ever been forced with answering anything about God, they're asking that question as well, and I think it's a really, really good question. In our text today, what we see in our text is that God shows, he, he tells us ahead of time, he's like, oh, here's how I'm going to share to Pharaoh, to Egypt, about my nature, about my being, about my character. And we see this, I believe, in verse 5. Listen to this in verse 5. This is God saying, oh, who am I and why should you obey me? Well, let me show you who I am and let me tell you why you should obey me. And we're going to see insane similarities to our world today. So here we go. This is verse 5. How will the Egyptians know? The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Two things, when I do two things. When first, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt, and when I bring the people of Israel out from among them. So the first thing that we see is God saying, who am I and why should you obey obey me? Well, here's who I am, and this is why you should obey me. You should obey me because I am going to stretch out my hand against Egypt. In other words, he's saying like, I am going to display the full might and power of my strength. I'm going to show you who I am. Not only that, that's the first thing, but the second thing is I'm going to show you that I'm a God who frees. I'm a God who liberates. I'm a God who saves. And you will see this through the freeing of my people, the freeing of the Hebrews. So let's look at that first thing, Uh, God showing his power. Uh, We're going to look at kind of four different aspects of how God will show his power to Pharaoh, to the Hebrews, and to the Egyptians as a whole. The first one has to do with God showing the totality of his power, right? So think about um, how God shows his power with the plagues, right? It's kind of interesting. We we look at our story today, and kind of the first little miracle that we see is, is Pharaoh saying, like, why should I obey you? And Moses says, oh, hey, here's a stick watch this. And kind of Aaron's got the stick and the staff and, and here we go. And, and it turns into a snake, right? Well, that's kind of cool. Like it's, it's impressive, certainly, particularly like if you believe that it actually happened, it's, it's pretty impressive. But like God, God could have done anything, Like right? You know, you, you could have seen that stick and the staff and, and you could have thought like, well, that may have been an illusion. I don't know. Like God could have done something significant. He could have done something absolutely spectacular, right? Like he could have said, hey, Pharaoh, check out your palace right here. Watch this. Boom. And he could have turned it into a swimming pool, right? He could have done that. But what would have happened if he did that? Like follow the logic with me in a worldview where, where Pharaoh believed that there were multiple gods. Like if Moses was able to just, boom, instantly turn his palace into a swimming pool. Like, first of all, that would be really impressive. Probably a whole lot more impressive than a stick into a snake because there would be no room for trickery in there. But if that were to happen, like, Pharaoh would have believed that, oh, okay, well, Yahweh is clearly the God who turns palaces into swimming pools. Like, that's that's who your God is. Um, He is the God who does this one thing. And even if... Uh, He said, okay, you can go, you can let your people go, like you can go to freedom. Even if he did that, then the Hebrew people would have believed that, oh, our God is the God who can turn houses into swimming pools. Um, But God is a lot more powerful than just a God who turns 
sticks into snakes or houses into swimming pools. Think about this. Why 10 plagues? Why 10? Well, through the totality of the 10 plagues, what does God do? God shows the totality of his power, right? So starting from um, the Nile, right, which would have been a source of one of their deities, to all these different acts that we see, to the animals, to the sickness, or sorry, to just uh, well-being and sickness, to the sun itself, to life itself eventually, through 10 different acts, God is showing, hey, I have power, I have control over everything. And so for centuries to come, the God of the Hebrews is not just the God who can turn the the stick into a snake. He's not just the God who can turn the palace into a swimming pool, but he is the God who rules over everything. I am Yahweh. You can try to, to, you know, do a little trick like us, like they did with the the stick and the snake, but I will eat your snake. I will show you that I am the dominant one true God. So why does God use 10 plagues? He uses 10 to show that he has power over everything. The next thing we see is that God works through um, our freedoms, right? It's interesting. If God only wanted to free uh, the if God only wanted to free the Hebrews, and that was his only objective, like, he didn't need Moses and Aaron. But God works through our freedoms, and he works through us. Like, God works through people. That's one of his primary means that he works. Like, think about it. If, if God just wanted to free the people, it, it could have been like a Tuesday afternoon, and here's the Hebrews. They're, they're making their brick, and they're, they're finding straw. Like, God could have just vaporized every single Egyptian at that moment. Boom! And the people of, uh, of Israel would have been totally free. Like, they could have done that. But God didn't choose to do it that way. Like, God chose to work through feeble, anxious, scared people like Moses and Aaron and people like you and I. Again, one of the primary ways that we see God work is through human beings, is through you and is through I. And that is what we see in this story. We don't see God just kind of on his own doing his thing. We see God showing to the world his nature and his being. Who am I and why should you obey me? Let me show you. And one of the primary ways that he does that is through people. The third thing we see is that God often reveals himself through um, what we just consider very natural ways. Right? So think with me for a second. Um, the first uh, sign, first miracle that, that Moses did is to kind of turn the snake, or is turn the staff into a snake, right? Which is cool. It's a cool sign. Um, and again, for someone who has a worldview that there are many gods who exist, that, that would not be a giant stumbling block, right? But for you and I, like, yeah, that might be something where we'd go like, yeah, I mean, maybe not you and I, because we believe that God exists. Uh, but if, for someone who doesn't believe that there is a God who exists, like, that might be something that is a pretty significant stumbling block, right? Like, I don't know about, kind of like the burning bush, right? Bushes that don't burn, like, you know, like, you, you just kind of write that off. It's like, that's not really believable. Like, that's unbelievable. But that's not primarily the way how God works. God doesn't regularly work through things that we look at and we go like, yeah, that's just absolutely not believable at all. Like, in kind of normal everyday life, God often works like he works through the plagues, right? And we're going to see this over the next upcoming weeks, but follow me just for a minute. Now, other than the first plague, now think about the first plague. The first plague is that the text says that the Nile River was turned to blood. Right now, kind of Western mind, like instantly, we believe uh, very often, like our minds go to like, okay, that's what happened. The Nile literally was blood. And that could have been what happened. Absolutely. That could have been Moses' intention when he said the Nile turned into blood. That's what it possibly could have been. Possibly could have been that um, it looked like blood, it smelled like blood, but it might not have been blood. That might not have been Moses' even intention of writing that down. But either way, like the first act, we'll just, we can say like, okay, maybe that was an absolute miracle. Maybe it was something that was maybe more of a natural event. But then after that, every single um, kind of major plague that happened was a natural occurring event that was a byproduct of the first. For the most part, right? Just think of like the general flow of this. So once the Nile turns bad, all the frogs leave the Nile, right? So there's frogs everywhere. That's a plague. And then the frogs die, right? And then there's gnats. And then there's flies, and then the animals get sick. And then there's boils, right? There's like a pandemic. I know I'm not supposed to use that word, but people get, people get sick, animals die. 
And then there's hail, and there's locusts, and then you've got the sun like being blotted out, and then you've got death of the firstborn. But most of these, like it could be really easy to look at Pharaoh and to say, what an idiot, you should have believed God. But here's Pharaoh looking at a lot of these events, potentially saying like, yeah, it is kind of weird coincidentally that Moses said they were going to happen, and then they happened right when they did. But here's Pharaoh going like, this also seems to kind of be like a natural thing, potentially. Like, I don't know. I just, I just, I don't know. I don't know that I want to believe God, right? Very much like how we might look at our world and say, man, there seems to be a lot of coincidences, but maybe it just feels natural. I don't know. I don't know if I want to believe that there's a God exists who I need to obey because it just, I don't know. Very much um, God often works through ways that seem quite natural. And to someone who has a predisposition towards not believing in him, it can be very easy to write it off as, oh, that's just another force of nature. Lastly, and this is a giant theme in the book of Exodus, and one that we briefly mentioned earlier, and I said I would come back to, I want to come back to this. This is the idea that God also works through our human agency. And we see this primarily through the language of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is one that theologians obviously have been debating about for thousands of years. Um, It's one that I'm going to solve right here, though, in the next three minutes. So that's pretty helpful. So just pay attention. Um, I'm teasing. I'm obviously being kind of silly. But um, the kind of the the first idea I think that comes to a lot of our, our minds when we think of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is like, wow, that seems really unfair. Like, that, that doesn't seem right of God to do. Like, we kind of get these ideas, at least I do, in my mind, when I, when I think of, like, God saying, I'm going to harden his heart. It's like, initially, does Pharaoh have this, like, really soft heart? Like, Pharaoh wants to do something. He wants to obey. And he's like, man, okay, I'm going to believe. But God's just like, nope, you are not going to believe me. I, I am going to use you as an object of wrath. Like, is that kind of the picture that's being shown here? Well, when you initially read that word that God's hardening Pharaoh's heart, like maybe that's what you would think, but I don't believe that that's what the story tells. Because if you read this story in its totality, we read multiple different things about this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. First of all, um, three different places in the text, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, right? So that is very true. So Pharaoh, on his own free will, his own human agency says... No, I don't want to obey you. No, I don't want to follow you. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Nah, I don't want to do it. I'm going to do my own thing. I I actually like the fact that I'm deified as God and I'm going to do my own thing. Right? So we see that three different times. Seven different times we see the text telling us that um, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't necessarily ascribe it to God or to Pharaoh, but it just says his heart was hardened. And six different times the text does say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So is it true that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and was disobedient towards God out of his own free will choice. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Is it simultaneously true that God hardened his heart and used Pharaoh as a, from the beginning as a plan to show you and I today the very nature and being of who God is and how he works and what salvation looks like? Yeah, that's absolutely true. God works through our agency You and I have free will, and yet God is sovereign and gets exactly what he wants. These are realities that are hard to wrestle with, but these are realities that the Bible very often speaks to, and it is very clear. Like, there's no denying that fact. Like, God is very clear. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. When he tells Moses in our text today, like, I want you to go to Moses, or I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to do these things, like, God tells him ahead of time, like, oh, and he's not going to listen to you, and I'm going to be part of his rebellion in that. But it's also very clear that, Moses, that Pharaoh on his own wants to rebel and not obey God. So we see that very, very clearly. So who is God? What is his power? First of all, we see that God is in control over everything as displayed by his acts over all of the dominion of creation that we see in the ten plagues. Right? Who is God? He is a God who primarily works through people. He works through people like you and I, through obedient, faithful people. Right? We talked about this weeks previously. God's working through the obedient action of the midwives. 
right? God's working through the obedient action of Moses and Pharaoh. And in this world today, God is working through the obedient action of you and I. We cannot just sit back and say, okay, God's going to do whatever he wants to do through this pandemic, right? God's going to do whatever he wants to do through this whole Black Lives Matter movement. God's going to do whatever he wants to do through education. God's going to do whatever he wants to do through poverty and income inequality right now in our community. God's going to do whatever he wants to do. No, like the primary way that God moves and works is through the obedient action of faithful people. So what is God asking you to do right now? God's power is also shown in ways that very often seem natural. So don't just look at the world and say, oh, that's just nature. Oh, that's just nature. The flies, well, of course they're going to be here because all the frogs died. You know, the, the, the death of animals, well, of course they're going to be there because, because this natural event and this natural event and this natural event. We cannot just simply look to nature and say, it's just nature. The Bible makes it very clear that God is in control of nature itself, that nature is a gift from God, and that is why we have it. And lastly, God accomplishes his will through our human agency. And here's the sobering reality. Every single life on this earth will bring honor to God. It will bring honor to God by either being faithful and obedient to the things that God has asked us to do, or we will bring honor and glory to God by being righteously judged and separated from him forever. Right? Like, that's a hard pill to swallow. Like, I don't just say that from like this posture of like, oh yeah, I'm bringing honor and glory to God by my obedience, but that person over there, by their damning, is going to bring glory to God. Like, that's hard. That is really hard, but the Bible also tells us that we have free will choices, that we can decide and we can make a choice. Am I going to close my eyes to a God who loves me, who's the creator of all things and who has for me a life of freedom with him, or am I going to choose to want to be the sovereign of my own world? God gives us those choices. The second thing that we see is that God is a God who brings us to freedom. Right? And we've talked about this theme, this idea a lot, but God's going to display to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt, oh, why, am I, why should you obey me? Well, let me show you. I'm going to be a, a God who brings people to freedom. And I want to look at the, the kind of overarching theme of how God does that in this text. Right? In verse 5, kind of going back to that, our primary text, it says, and I will bring them out. I will bring out the people of Israel from among them. Right? So God is a God who is for freedom. He is a God who frees the oppressed, who eventually will judge the oppressors. He is a God who is for us, who is for our freedoms, who is for bringing order, for bringing peace, for destroying bondage, for destroying injustices, right? For the Hebrews, it was obvious, like they needed to be freed because they were enslaved for 400 years. For you and I, it's the same story. When we obey God, what do we get? When we obey God, we get a community and a life and a world that not just flourishes, but a life that leads to the, to the, um, to the community and to the well-being and to the health of all individuals. So we see the world um, better off when we are obedient. We see a world that leads to freedom, both personally and as a society. So think about this with me for a minute. And this is, this is an interesting thought that a lot of theologians um, kind of go back and forth on. Um, and, and really, there's, there's a lot to be said about this idea that when we are obedient, right, when we, um, when we obey God, it leads to a society, it leads to a culture, it leads to an individual life of well-being, right? Now, I'm not just saying, like, if you obey God, you're going to be rich. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the general order of a society. And the opposite is true. When you disobey God, it destroys the very fabric of what a community is supposed to be, right? So follow me in this kind of beautiful picture analogy of what we're going to see through uh, the, really the display of the Egyptians here. So here's Moses. He's going to Pharaoh and he's saying, hey, Pharaoh, obey God. If you do not obey God, things will not go well for you. They will not go well for your people. They will not go well for your land. And ultimately, the final result will be death, right? And so what do we see? We see the first, in, through this progression of plagues, we see things progressively get worse as a society when we disobey God, right? So here's Pharaoh, and he's like, nope, I'm not going to do it. Okay, well, here comes frogs. Got another chance. Nope, I'm not going to do it. Here comes fleas. 
Nope, not going to do it. And ultimately, it leads to what? Like when we perpetually, continuously do not obey God, the final result is both darkness, we see before the last plague, and death. Right, which is so fascinating because literally, and this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying theologians talk about this idea, is that this is a reversal of God's creation order in the beginning parts of Genesis. Right, so in the beginning parts of Genesis, what do we see? We see that there was no life. Right? And then the first thing that we see is that there was darkness. And then as God creates, he brings order and he brings beauty. And he brings, like we talked about last week in Eden, he brings a place where we dwell with God with a people and a place. Right? But when we disobey God, when we are disobedient to who he is, to his nature and his character, Eden gets reversed. Right? And so chaos and order become the norm. Right? And we go back to the place, all the way back to where there is darkness. That was the first thing. And then there is death. Right? So when we as a people disobey God and we do not follow him, the natural progression is that we separate ourselves from God and ultimately there is darkness and ultimately there is death. Now think about our day. Right? Think about all the things that you and I face right now. Right? Think about the conversations that our nation is having. Things like racism. Right? Things like selfishness and extreme income inequality and extreme individualism and anger and hate. All of these things are, are a destruction of a culture and a community as a result of being disobedient to God. Right? Because what does God call us to? He calls us to radical sacrificial love of everyone as we love ourselves. Right? So when we obey the gospel, there is no racism. When we obey the gospel, people don't go to bed hungry while other people are flying in private jets. That just is not what happens to a community. But when we disobey the gospel, what do we see? We see the unraveling of a very world that we live in. And God is saying, obey me, and it leads to freedom. Obey me, follow my commands, and your world will thrive. This is what happens when we obey. But when we don't, a society breaks down. When we refuse to obey God, when you and I deny that God exists, what happens to Egypt will happen to us. Right, and think about this, as the progression of Egypt happens, and Pharaoh's saying, nope, I'm not going to obey God, and God's saying, okay, there will be consequences, there will be disaster, right? It, it follows that there's death for the firstborn son, but then it, it goes beyond that even, as we continue to read, not just with the plagues, but Pharaoh gets upset again when he finally frees the people, and he's like, no, forget about it, we're going to send my army after them, and then more disobedience leads to the destruction of his entire army, Man, when we refuse to obey God, we live in a world where destruction is the norm. Lastly, and I'll close on this and we'll finish on this, I want to make one more point. Notice that neither the Egyptian nor the Hebrew were able to free themselves. All right, think with me for just a minute. The Egyptians thought that they were free. Pharaoh thought that he had the ability to make whatever choices he wanted whenever he wanted, very much like our world right now, very much like most people in our world. We believe that we have the, the individual authority. We believe that we have the autonomy. We believe that we want to live our lives the way that we want to live them. And when we do that, we are not free. And the, we see the results in Pharaoh. We see the results of what happened in Egypt when we disobey God. He was not able to free himself when he thought that he himself already was free. But then you have the people who knew that they were trapped. You've got these Hebrews. But they couldn't free themselves either. Both of these groups of people needed to be freed from the outside. Right? So for the individual who says, yeah, I, I've got it. I'm fine. I'm living my life. I'm doing my thing. I think I'm free. The final result will be death. And they need to be freed from that. And for the individual who knows, like, oh my goodness, I, I can't do this. I want to have freedom. I can't get out though. I'm stuck. I'm enslaved. They need help from the outside too. Which is why ultimately the story culminates in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what we're talking about here in terms of freedom is not just a freedom from the oppression of some um, worldly force, but it's the oppression of sin itself. 
It's the oppression from the very nature of our souls that say, I want to rebel against God, which will ultimately lead to a separation from God. And the only hope that we have is to say, Jesus, I I can't free myself on my own. Whether I feel like I'm free or whether I know that I'm in bondage, I need you to come free me because I need you to pay for what I could never pay for, and that is my sin. And that is what we get in the cross. And that is why every single week we want to land right there back to Jesus, that we recognize that God is a God who is all-powerful, that God is a God who frees, and that the way that God frees is through his son sacrificing his life, that redemption that we talked about last week, that, that redeem word, that God gave his life so that we can have true, absolute freedom. So yes, we need to work hard and obey God to bring that Genesis 1 and 2 world of flourishing, right? But we need to recognize that first, in order to do that well, we need to be rescued. Whether we think we need it, like the Egyptians, or whether we know that we need it, the reality is we need the cross. Would you pray with me? Father God, I I thank you for this word. God, I thank you that in your story of Exodus, it's still the same story today. God, that when we as a nation refuse to obey you, Genesis 1 and 2 come unraveled. And the final consequence will be separation from you and will be death. But God, this is not just about us as a nation making policies so that we'll obey you. It's about our need for you, Jesus. Our need to change our affections, to change our desires, and ultimately to pay for our rebellion against you. Jesus, we, um, we're hurting right now. I mean, the reality is, as a country, we're hurting. And, and I, I personally believe things are going to get harder. So, Jesus, we need you now more than ever. Um, We need you now. Would you come? Would you invade spaces? Would you invade our hearts? Would you invade our minds? Holy Spirit, would you work in our city? Would you work in our nation? Would you work in our world to show that you are God and to free us? God, we need you. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
feel the promise your buried body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me then came the morning that sealed 